The Song of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Best for me? My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers as a garment. Their eyes swell out to fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart will fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell all your words. Please turn. Father, you are good. No good thing have you withheld held in from those who walk uprightly. You gave us Christ, your only begotten Son, the best you could give. How will you not with him freely give us all things, Lord? We have all that we need in you. We confess, Lord, we crave earthly things. We crave worldly things. We crave sinful things. We think that they can make us happy. And we can really rejoice in them. That we need them more, Lord, than we need you. Show us your supreme work. Show us that, Lord, it is a good life to love Christ. Above all, show us the goodness and the simplicity of devotion to Him. Show us yourself. To Christ, I pray. Amen.
What do you do when you're confronted with two truths that be in conflict? Two realities that cannot seem to be put together. For example, the Bible says that God created all things, but your science class says that we evolved from apes. Your parents say that God is loving and good, but when you look at how your life is going, and you know, it doesn't really seem like he really is that loving towards you. You know that Jesus commands us to love all people. Yes, including your family members, but your heart feels cold and honestly is bitter against them. You know the gospel of Christ calls you to long for heaven to forsake sin, but the world and its pleasures look and feel so good. You know you shouldn't love the world nor the things in the world, but your unbelieving friends invite you to participate anyways, and your curiosity is piqued, and your resolve is away. You know that God satisfies. That's what the Bible says, right? But the things of God, Bible reading, praying, coming to church, going to church, they honestly are just so boring sometimes. Not all the time. What do you do then? You know you're not supposed to down the Bible, Jesus, the gospel. I doubt any of you would be willing to get up on here and argue, yeah, that's what you should do. But you also can't deny the reality of your experience is getting you. Know the desires of your heart. There's this cognitive dissonance, this internal fight. What do you do then? Our psalm today is Psalm 73. And is the testimony of a man named Asaph, who when confronted with two seemingly incompatible realities, almost abandoned God. It is a testimony of a man who went to the brink of unbelief, who stared down into the dark abyss, and then by the mercy of God, stepped back and was brought back to the path of the Think with me. Why would this be in the Bible? Why would this testimony of doubt and struggle and suffering and really dishonoring God, why would it be in the Bible? It's because the Bible is real. It's about real people with real struggles in the midst of a real sin-cursed earth, about a real God who meets our real needs with his real hope. The Bible was written a long time ago, yeah, but it speaks today to you and to me. It's the living word of God that speaks into our painful reality. So if you have ever doubted God's goodness, if you've, ever, if you've ever thought that God has failed you, if you've ever been disappointed by a promise in Scripture, if you've ever thought, I wish I were an unbeliever, if you've ever wandered and drifted away from the church, if you've ever been tempted to love this world, if you've ever felt like giving up on God, this psalm is written for you. Let's learn from this man's testimony and come back to the path of eternal life. There are three things I want you to see. The crisis of faith, the judgment of the wicked, and the God of eternity. First, let's look at Asaph's crisis. Verse 1 says, Truly God has been to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is like a Sunday school level platitude, right? All the Israelites would say, well, duh, of course God has been to us. Let's do it. Bash me, verse 2. My feet are almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. In other words, Asaph doubted the truth in verse 1. Slipping and stumbling are actually expressions of destruction. He almost fell off the foundation of the faith. He almost denied the God that was good to Israel. Why? Verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Meaning he saw the wicked living the good life. He wanted what they had. 
wealth, prosperity, joy, peace. Can you relate? Listen to how Asaph describes them in the verse 4. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, fat and sleek in the ancient context is a good thing. It means they're well fed and healthy. Verse 5. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. In other words, their lives are healthy, they're relaxed, they're successful, and they're unashamed of their sin. Verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their tongues against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. When the Bible says the wicked, it simply means those who don't believe. It simply means unbelievers. Despite their pride and violence, despite their scoffing and slander, despite their blasphemy and arrogance, they thrive. They live the good life. They live on easy street. Verse 10. Therefore his people, as praying to God's people, turn back to them, the wicked, and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Because the wicked prosper, God's people God. I mean, if the fat prospers, you can't be bad, right? And all the while, the wicked mock God. They call him ignorant, stupid, blind. How can God know? This is what Asaph saw in his day. But today, things are exactly the same. They're not. Unbelievers prosper. They are the rich and famous, the beautiful and the powerful, the movie stars, the political leaders, the business moguls, the great athletes. They live long lives full of fame and fortune and feasting. And we think to ourselves, why would God give better gifts to unbelievers than to us, his children? Unbelievers don't love God. They don't walk in righteousness. They hate God and they love their sin. They reject Jesus Christ and his gospel. They worship the gods of money and pleasure and power. Titus 3.3 says that they are foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts. To spending their lives in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. I'm not trying to do that one thing. I'm just describing what the Bible says about the wicked. And yet the scripture promise of the wicked man, the unbelieving man, will fall by his own wickedness, that he is thrust down by his own wrongdoing, that his years be shifted. The promises of the wicked are overthrown and are no more, that they are filled with trouble. That their house will be destroyed because of the curse of the Lord rests upon it. That they'll be cut off from the land and uprooted from it. And that's just seven verses from the Proverbs. Our study from Psalms has even taught us this, right? You high schoolers, the first psalm that you guys went through was Psalm 1. Psalm 1 4 says that the wicked are not blessed, but they're like a chaff which the wind drives away. You junior high when I preach Psalm 2, the king was boiling with a rod of iron and shattered them like earthen. So what gives? Why are they so prosperous? Does God punish the wicked or does he not? Are God's promises true or are they not? Is scripture trustworthy or is it not? Is God righteous and fair or is he not? Is he good and generous or is he not? If you've never asked these questions, don't worry, you will. When my friends left the faith, when my relatives died, 
But God said no to my prayer for the South Thousand Times. When my family suffers, when my trades of doubt are unleashed. What do I do? Maybe you're just like Asaph. You see the wicked partying, living it up, having the best life in else. Doing what you know is sin. But you pray what they have. You want to be free, popular, beautiful, just like them. Or maybe you just feel this tension between what the world values and what scripture values. The world wants pleasure and prosperity, but the scriptures promise and pain. You ask, why would God want me to be unhappy? Or maybe you just really struggle to believe that God is love. I mean, people suffer and die every day. If God is really loving, wouldn't He stop all that suffering, right? Wouldn't He just make everything all right? Or maybe you've done your very best to live the Christian life. You pray, you read the Bible, you come to church, you obey your parents, but it still hasn't fixed your depression. It still hasn't cured your sadness. You still feel alone, miserable. Like that itself. And you ask, what's the point of all? Some of you are in the fight of your lives, and I want to tell you, you're not alone. Look at me at verse 13. Aesop says, as he reflects on the posterity of you, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He looks back at his life of devotion and he says, It was worthless. I obeyed, I refrained from sin, and it profited me nothing. Instead of blessing, I got beat up by my conscience. Instead of encouragement, I got criticism every day. If, the being, if being wicked leads not to punishment, but to blessing, why not join me? Now listen, Asaph is no spiritual weakling. weakling. He was assigned by King David himself to be the worship leader of all Israel. In fact, his entire family was devoted to praising God in the temple. Worship, worshiping God was not just their profession, it was their life. He was like the worship pastor of a church, but instead the worship pastor of the entire nation of Israel. He knew his Bible. He sang the songs. In fact, he actually wrote some of the Bible. He wrote 12 to 150 songs that we have, including, of course, Psalm 73. But godliness doesn't struggle. In fact, Asaph's prominence and position made his suffering that much harder. Verse 15. He said, if I had said, I will speak thus, if you were to share about how he envied the wicked, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. As a leader, he couldn't share. If he did, his fellow Israelites would have called him a traitor. How can a worship leader doubt God? So enslaved as doubts, Asaph muzzled his mouth and became trapped in the prison of his own making. Is that you? You're wrestling with doubts, you feel alone, afraid, scared. You try to ignore them, but they come back. You try to find answers, but answers, but you're not really satisfied. You're not alone. You think you're the first person at God? I mean, how could you be? Esau lived thousands of years before you. You're not alone. Every Christian, if they're honest, has unanswered questions, has doubted God at some point in their life. Don't be afraid to ask those hard questions and admit your doubts. 
when they're handled rightly in faith, they actually push you to walk by faith and grow in the knowledge of the truth. So what will you do with your doubts? Will you just sit there and let them eat your life? Or will you fight them by the power of God? Will you tell your doubts to shut it? Because the truth is more true than what they're saying. You need to search the truth and then preach truth to yourself over and over again. You need to trust God, the maker of all, not because you feel like it, but because you know he will in time answer all of your questions. Now here I'm really tempted to preach a different sermon um, about how to fight spiritual depression. Uh, if you're in junior high, So Psalm 42, 42, I will preach what it means to hope in God in the midst of darkness. But that's not that's what we'll get into this day. In Psalm 73, Asaph, when confronted with his doubt, doesn't go to despair. Instead, he turns to worship. Look at the second point, the judgment of the wicked. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned that the sanctuary of God is where the presence of God dwelt. In the holy holies, above the ark of the covenant, behind the veil, God manifested his glory. If any person were to step behind that veil in an improper manner, God would kill him instantly because of the sheer glory of his holiness. Outside in the tabernacle, in the courtyard, the Israelites offered sacrifices, burning oxen, sheep, goats, birds, as an act of worship to God. Right, imagine in mind. Hear the cries and the prayers of people as they confess their sins. Smell the charred flesh of the animals as the smoke ascended to heaven. See the blood of the animals poured on the ground as, as the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. On festival days, the whole nation would gather and sing the Psalms of David and Asaph, the God their king. Lyres and harps and timbrels and trumpets and sounds of people danced and sung and shouted. For the Israelites, all of their senses. And I think it's no mistake that here, in the sanctuary, Asaph finds the answer to God's. What is the answer? He discerned their end. Sudden death. Verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dreamer when awake, so Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Notice here the psalmist shifted dramatically to speak to God. In the presence of God, Asaph was confronted with the truth. The wicked may prosper now, but God will judge them in the end. God will ruin them, destroy them, despise them as a bad dream. Right now, it might seem like the wicked are blessed, but it's only because God is gracious. And he blesses both the righteous and the wicked in this life. Matthew 5 says, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. It sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Acts 17 says, he gives to all people everywhere life and breath and all things. This means the wicked enjoy good things in this life, not because they're good, or because God is unjust, but because God is good, and he gives you gifts you don't deserve. But God's grace does not nullify justice. In the end, the wicked will be for their sins. God will judge them. He will punish them utterly. 
That almost seems like a strange way to resolve a theological knot, right? Imagine asking Asaph, hey Asaph, how do you reconcile the reality that unbelievers prosper in this life and yet God says that they won't? And then Asaph turns to you and he says, they'll all die. Like, good grief, right? Is this some bloodlust, some like cruel, twisted delight in the death of the victim? No, it's not. Asaph is not gloating over the death of the victim. There's actually nothing like that in the text, to be careful. Instead, he's lifting his gaze up from the things of earth and setting his eyes on eternity, on God. Justice, divine justice, true justice is the answer. This is God's world. He made it. It's his reality. And no one gets away with anything. Justice is never aborted. Even when we don't understand, God never ceases to be perfectly just and good. To our puny minds, we see, you know, the scriptures say contradicts sometimes, right? I assure you, they never do. Not true. They never do. Not true. God is a God of scripture and the God of the reality, of our reality. He cannot lie. He will not deny himself. He is truth. But for everything he says, is truth. The only reason Asaph thought reality conflicted scripture is because he was so obsessed with this life, he forgot God. Have you? Where is your gaze? What are you staring at the most? Is it this life and the things of this world? Or is it on God and the things of above? Too many of you are walking around staring at your belly buttons and you're wondering when you run the walls and trip over things and get hurt. Forgetful Christian, you need to lift your eyes to heaven. Forgetful Christian, you need to look at eternity. You need to wake up to reality, God's reality, what he has made. You need to see the God of eternity. So now turn with me to verse 21 and gaze with me at the God of eternity. When my soul bittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. When all Asaph could do was see this life, he was blind into God. He was like an animal, ignorant. Stupid, dumb. When we're like this, we're insane. We're like little ants stirring around, fragging about, you know, the fact that we're trying to find this crumb of food, and oh my gosh, our great fans are messed up. All the while ignoring God in heaven who looks down in love. We're like chickens with our heads cut off, discombobulated, crazy, delusional. That's what we're trying to figure out why we can't see the sky anymore and uh, where our head is. We're like little children from a tantrum. Crying so hysterically that we cannot hear the voice of reason, the voice of truth, the voice of love. If we only record ourselves in our thoughts, in our insanity, and somehow play it back to ourselves, we'd see we're acting like crazy people, thinking thoughts and saying words and making decisions that in our insanity. Oh, that was weird. Can you turn the light? Thank you. If we could only record ourselves in our thoughts and see ourselves in our insanity, we realize we're crazy people, acting, living, believing as if God were not true. Sin makes us insane. Sin makes us less than human, like an animal. Sin makes us stupid. So how will God deal with us? Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, God. You hold my right. 
even in our blindness and ignorance, we dwell in the presence of our merciful Savior. Dear Christian, he's with you. Even when you're insane, he's with you. Even in your spiritual temperament, he's with you. Even when you feel he's far, even when you're at your absolute worst, even when you can, you slam the door in his face. You might blame him, ignore him, or he lies about him, he person. But what does he do? He opens that door, he walks up to you, he grabs your right hand, and he says this Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous strength. I am Yahweh, your love, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. In the fury of the storm of your doubt, do you realize God is with you? As you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, do you realize that God is holding your hand? As you suffer through another season of depression, God says to you, do not fear, I'm with you. As you struggle with anorexia and panic attacks, God Almighty says to you, I will strengthen you. I will help you. Even when he feels far. Even when you are pray. Even when you lust for the things. When you cannot see the light, he holds your hand. Don't you know he actually loves you? One commentator writes that our security and stability come from God holding on to us. Not our ability to hold on to God. Say that again. Our security and stability come from God holding on to us, not our ability to hold on to God. If God has given you faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust Him for salvation from Satan's sin and death, you belong to Him, period. Nothing will change, nothing will separate you from Him. Even you cannot separate you from Him. He has grabbed a hold of you, and for eternity, He is yours, and you are His. Jesus says in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father. Whatever your crisis, whatever your doubts, whatever your sufferings, whatever your fears, God is merciful. If you're his child, he holds you with strong hands, the hands that made the world. He holds you close. He holds your hand all your life long. Come back to him one more soul. Come back to him all you're lost and weary and crazy and confused. Come back to him. He is the one who can satisfy your soul. And so God is our Savior. Verse 24 says, You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will see me to glory. The counsel of God led Asaph back to reality. Like a shepherd, God restored this erring sheep, this beloved child, and brought him back to the narrow path of right thinking and right living. For us, the wisdom of God is codified in Scripture, supremely revealed in Jesus. And this counselor leads on the right path. The Scriptures teach us true reality. It is the only trustworthy lens with which we see everything else. 
The word of God is the lamp unto our feet, the light unto our path. And on this path, God leads us to glory. Lord, what is this glory? It's heaven. The very abode of God. We're, we're so worried about the things of the earth, like our studies and our life, our today, our tomorrow, our desires. But what is the really thought about heaven. Comes God will make all things new. There'll be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more sadness, no more mourning, no crying, no pain, no disease. There will be no more curse. There will be no more sin. There will be no more doubt. We will no longer be poor in spirit or suffer wants. For the Lord our shepherd has given us everything in the kingdom. We will not mourn for God to comfort. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and even the memory of every sorrow we will, no longer, we will no longer hunger and thirst for righteousness, but we will be satisfied. We will no longer be persecuted, afflicted, struck down, discouraged, distressed. We will rest in the arms of our Savior. Of our Savior. When we enter heaven, our Father will say these glorious words Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful to few things, I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Our faith, our hope will turn to reality. Our love for God will burst anew, every moment higher, every taste richer. In heaven, we will see God on his glorious throne, unmediated, untainted, unveiled. The God who is life and light and love. In heaven, God will dwell with us. And we will be his people and he will be our God forever. Christian, you are made to be. Heaven is our true place, our eternal home, our forever final rest. It's where you belong. And God is taking our hand and leading us throughout the world. He's our Savior. From the moment you got saved all the way. What more could you want? What more could you possibly ask? Third, God is our satisfaction. Verse 25. If you have such vision of Asaph says, Who am I in heaven with you, Lord? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's breathtaking, isn't it? Do you really believe that? Can you say this verse? If you had no intelligence, no beauty, no status, no skill, no health, no family, no friends, no money, no one to love you, no earthly pleasure, nothing, absolutely nothing but God. Would he be enough? Would he be enough for you? Whom am I in heaven but you, Lord? No one. Besides you, I desire nothing on the earth. This is where God, by his mercy, brought Asaph. He turned his doubt into devotion, his despair into delight. He showed him satisfaction can be found only in God. True Christianity is not measured by how many Bible facts you know, or how much you have church, or how eloquently you pray, but your desire and satisfaction in God. So Psalm 63 says, O oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. If you're a Christian, you know what it, mean, what it means when David said, 
I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no question. If you're a Christian, your heart weeps in your chest for joy when you hear Peter say to Jesus, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. If you're a Christian, your heart's on fire when you read the Apostle Paul, when he writes, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is just basic Christianity. We want God. We want God over all of us. He's transformed us from the out to desire Him, to find our all in Him in the world. I want to talk to two different kinds of people now. First, I want to talk to those who are lying to yourself, saying, oh, that, that's, that's way too radical. Desire God alone? That's like for, you know, extraordinary Christians, for pastors and missionaries and people like that. Love me. I can want God in the world. I can have God and sin. Don't be a fool. You cannot have both. You cannot serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other, or despise one and serve the other. First John says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. What would it profit you if you regain the whole world? Riches, fame, beauty, adorance, adoration, acceptance, comfort, all of them we can have. And then you lost God. You lost your very soul. What good would it be if you were to linger long and drink deep of the cesspool of sin? You wouldn't drink sewage, would you? So why would you gulp down the loneliness? What good would it be for you to have your best life now and then perish eternally in hell? Why love the world when you can have God, the very fountain of joy? He is the eternal, infinite one, the fountain of every blessing. He is the one who loved his own from before the foundation of the world. He is the one who knows every hair in your head and every thought of your heart. He's the one who gave his best for you. He gave his beloved son. He killed Christ for your sake. There's no greater love, no greater comfort, no greater pleasure, no greater joy than knowing the God of all. You can find it through delight. You have God. You know what it means when David wrote, In your presence is for your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. If you're a Christian, you want this more. The second kind of person I want to talk to, I think are most of you, who want to desire God alone. In your heart of hearts, you really do love Him. But it's hard. And you struggle in many ways. That desire to know God, to be dissatisfied with your dissatisfaction with God, that's good. That's really good. That's not a view. It's a gift from God, and we should thank Him for it. Because we're sinners, we easily wander from God. We stuff ourselves with every other thing video games, TV, parties, studying, sports, friends, food. We try to fill the God shaped chasm in our souls. We ruin our appetite for God with joyless idolatry. 
So in love, God breaks that. He breaks the idol. He uses suffering as a divine instrument to take those things away and to teach us our greatest need is for him. That's why when you chase your pleasures in the world, you still find them. It's because you're made for him. That's why when you sin, you still gain no lasting joy. It's because you're made for him. That's why when you hunger for applause and approval of men, you never feel good at all. It's never satisfying. It's because you are made for him. God uses these disappointments to convince us that if we had everything but him, we would have nothing. And by faith, he teaches us that if we have only him, we have everything. Don't you see the emptiness, the joylessness, the dissatisfaction that you have with the things of earth is by the divine design. The trumpet blast, the shout from the heavens saying, oh, it's because you're made for God. Is God enough? Is he? He is. If you're afraid and hurting, angry and confused, God is enough. If you're alone and forsaken and miserable and misunderstood, God is enough. If you need a comforter, a savior, a father, a champion, a redeemer, a friend, a king, God is enough. If you're a Christian, you do believe this truly, but not yet fully. For the rest of your life, therefore, believe it more and more and more. Meditate upon the rich blessings we have in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 says, You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ, therefore, is our life. God has placed us in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. First Corinthians 1. We have been washed wider than snow. Love from eternity past all the way to eternity future. We've been welcomed into God's family. We've been declared righteous, good in God's sight because of what Christ has done in our place. God is our satisfaction. He truly is enough. But he's also our confidence. Look at verse 26. It's probably better translated, more clearly translated this my flesh and heart may expire and die, but God is the strength of my heart, my possession forever. And getting older is a scary thing, and that's literally true for everyone who does You're encountering things you never saw before, you never experienced before. You're changing, everyone around you is changing, the world is changing. How are you supposed to know what to do? How are you supposed to know what to think? The older you get, the greater the fears and the louder the doubts become. What if that happens? What if I'm not because of this reason? Or what if I don't have the strength to make it to the end? Will God really welcome your glory when I die? But listen to Asaph's confidence. He says, My flesh and my heart may expire, but God is the strength in my heart and my possession forever. In other words, Asaph's confidence is not Asaph. Asaph's confidence is God. God guides us home. God holds our hand. Gives us strength, and He is our confidence. I'm not confident in Pete. I'm not confident in Pete. I'm not confident in my strength. I'm dust. Dust is beloved. Dust has been redeemed by Christ. But dust, nonetheless. So are you. God knows that, for He made us. And therefore, His compassion is upon us. That's why we have to hide in Him as our strength, 
in our fourth verse, verse 27. But behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. These are the words of a man made resolute, made strong. He sees the wicked, all their glitz and glamour, and is tempted no more. You need to be able to say this about them. Yeah, they have their pleasure now, but they're far from God. God will deal with them on his time. I don't need to die. But for me, it is good for me to be near God. He is my refuge, my fortress, my hiding place, my security, my confidence. He leads me in this life by the hand. He's my only satisfaction. He's my strength, my refuge. I will tell of his works. I will declare how good he's been to me. Psalm 46 then can become your anthem. God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains slip to the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling time. All that brings up happens still. God is my refuge. God is my strength. I will not Our glorious God. God of eternity. Comfort, our Savior, our satisfaction, our confidence. So, what are you going to do when you hear something that contradicts what I just told you? What are you going to do when you can't reconcile what the culture says and what scripture says? What are you going to do when your feelings tell you exactly the opposite of what you learned at first? Run to God. Run to God. If you're starting with a theological knot, seek answers from Him and His Word. If you don't know where to look, go find someone who does. If you're struggling to forsake the world, seek strength from God. Christ understands every temptation that you could go through, and He stands eager to give you grace and help in time of need. If you're struggling to enjoy the things of God, reading the Bible, praying, etc., etc., go find a Christian friend and do those things with them. If you can't find a Christian friend, come talk to me, and I'll go find your Christian friend for you. But fellowship, Encouragement together with them to your strength. If you're struggling to believe that God really is good, really is good, read the Psalms. I mean, the Psalms say some pretty surprising things. Make these things your prayers because they're honest and they're wrong. If you're struggling to hope that tomorrow will be better, then hope in God, not in tomorrow. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can trust in Him. God brought Asaph to his doubts. Psalm 73 is evidence of that, isn't it? But to that testimony of Asaph, he's actually got millions and millions more testimonies, namely by the lives of every saint in his church. God has brought your brothers and sisters, your fellow travelers on this journey home through storms, and winds, fears, and doubts. And he's shown us beyond a shadow of a doubt. And yes, God is trustworthy and true. Isn't that, we, isn't that why we sing songs like what's what we sing today? Christ, the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. The winds of doubt, and my sails have all been torn. And the suffering and the sorrow, and my sinking hopes are few. What will you do? I will hold fast to the anchor. That is Christ. It shall never 
be removed. Dear Christian believer, God will bring you through this. He will be and is your comfort, your savior, your satisfaction, your strength, your direction. God is enough. Okay. So what we have with your world? No one. And what do we desire on the earth besides you? Father, so many things. You know. You know that we want to believe that you are enough. We, you know that we want to believe you will satisfy every hunger and thirst. We fail so many ways. We confess that apart from you, we have no hope. And we also confess that our eyes are wandering. So many times we stupid way. It's against him. Help us to believe that in Christ we have everything. That our riches in him exceed the heavens. Help us to believe with all that we are, that at your right hand are pledged forevermore. Help us to believe that you are our sufficiency, our hope, our joy, our satisfaction. You bless your goodness so much in our life. It shows us again that we are forgetful people. Above all else, we need you. It's in Christ's words and in prayer. Amen.